Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I've got CJ Constantinos, the Greek freak, big Greek, coming in with you hot. We had an awesome, awesome conversation all about the greater macro environment, Bitcoin miners, and much, much more. So tune in for another action-packed episode and hit that subscribe button. If you're not already subscribed wherever you get podcasts, hit it right now. Help your boy out. Give it a five-star review. Tell a friend to tell a friend. And remember that this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast between CJ and I is strictly the opinion of us and only us. And lastly, shout out to the sponsors, The Bitcoin Advisor. If you want to book an appointment with me, I can help you out. Help secure your Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, hold it so nobody can touch it, estate plan, so in the case of your death, your family, your friends, a church maybe even, can get your Bitcoin in the event of your passing because we all know there's two uh, there's two guarantees in this life, taxes and death. And so I can help you out and get everything all settled out. And if you're a Green Candle listener, I can give you the first month free for our services. So visit content.thebitcoinadvisor.com dot com backslash green candle and book an appointment with me asap and lastly shout out to hodlers official the number one jerseys in the game h-o-d-l-e-r-s official.com and use promo code green candle for your entire order off all right now let's get into the episode whoosh Bing bong. We are back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I've got the man, the big Greek, CJK, <laughs> CJ Constantinos here in the building where we're going to have an action-packed conversation all about Bitcoin and the overall macro environment. But first, I got to I got to start off hot, right? I mean, we we have the ETF coming, we have the having, and we have potential interest rates, you know, coming down. So CJ, how bullish are you here? And uh, yeah, do you think that Bitcoin's price action is just going to take off here soon? Or do you think it's going to be a little bit delayed down the line? Um, yeah, with all these crazy macro factors coming down the line and that having. Oh, I, I couldn't be more bullish than I am now. And I felt that way the previous having. And it turned to be a good gut feeling. So I have that gut feeling raised maybe to the 20th or 50th power. Uh, just because of everything that's happening for Bitcoin right now. Truly, we're watching Bitcoin transform from digital gold to digital collateral. A whole new marketplace, not a $12 trillion store of value, but a hundred-plus trillion dollar marketplace is going to open up this cycle. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the thing that's got me extremely, extremely bullish is that we've seen this little bump here from like about 20 to 40K. I'm just going to use round numbers. But we've seen that bump strictly on Bitcoin news with the Bitcoin ETF. Now, I am you know, obviously against kind of people buying the Bitcoin ETF, but it gives a lot more people access to that, right? Because, you know, now they have institutional uh, people and it gives it backing, right? I mean, BlackRock, the biggest... Um, what is it? The biggest uh, investment uh, company in the world that they own the most assets in basically the entire globe. And I mean, if you don't think that BlackRock's essentially pulling the strings behind the scenes, who are you kidding? <laughs> but, you know, BlackRock getting that ETF, I think, adds a lot of validity behind Bitcoin. So, you know, from your perspective, what do you think of TradFi kind of coming in? Do you think that this is a net negative, uh, at least for the short term? Or do you think this was inevitable? Like, what's your viewpoint on? traditional finance coming in to the bitcoin space and uh raising the price up for the for some of these plebs here <laughs> that's right well i think the real important thing here is that the etfs are going to enable the base layer of demand on bitcoin to grow like they've never grown before for people like you and me who've been around for a few cycles here when you're telling friends and family you know oh bitcoin just broke a thousand bucks you gotta get in well sometimes it took them to get two or three weeks or more just to set up an account and go through KYC and get it all done so that they had an opportunity to, to start stacking Bitcoin. Well, today, all you need to do is get into your brokerage account, click a few buttons, and you're into Bitcoin. That makes a big difference. Now, are there other issues like self-custody that need to be talked about and highlighted? Of course there are. But when it comes to what the ETF does for Bitcoin as a marketplace, it significantly increases the levels of liquidity 
and the availability of Bitcoin to the masses. And with this price action that we've seen, I think um, it's amazing because some people are bearish. <laughs> They're like, oh, we went to 49 and then back down to 39. This is bearish. Like you said, though, we were at 20. We were sub 20. So Bitcoin is the best performing asset in the world. And now all of a sudden people are bearish. That's really what makes Bitcoin magic internet money. It's the best performing asset in the history of finance. And people can still somehow magically be bearish on it. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense for me. From the technical side of things in the short term view, we have an inverse head and shoulders with a bull flag breakout at about the $44,000 level. You break above 44,000, you have a measure moved right up to 50. Matches what I said a couple of weeks ago that once this distribution from the FTX sell-off, from the GBTC NAV discount to NAV premium sell-off, from the distribution from the speculation on the ETF approvals with BlackRock, once all that gets distributed and cycled through, Bitcoin is going to move with authority back to the top of the range. And it's already halfway there. But I do love the inverse head and shoulders with the measured move to 50. If we break to the upside, I say we go to 50. We break to the downside, I say we go to 36. That's a technical wrap-up. What about the fundamentals? Well, the fundamentals, starting with BlackRock, offering that base layer of demand, almost unlimited growth. Anybody with a brokerage account can now get in. That's big. That is big news. But what does that base layer of demand mean against a fixed supply? Now we get into the fundamentals, the economics of Bitcoin. Well, the ETF is there, but the demand is not. But the pipelines of that ETF will facilitate the superhighway, the 401k superhighway of automatic income liquidity injections. People will own Bitcoin because their asset manager puts it in their portfolio. And I think they'll own it without even knowing that they own it. A lot like everybody today owns some stuff, some junk debt, some shit in their portfolio that shouldn't be in there, and they don't even know it. They just look at that, that number on the screen. And as long as that number goes up, well, their retirement's looking better. Bitcoin's going to play a big role in getting that number to go up because it is literally number go up technology. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just a no brainer here, right? I mean, fiat supply is just going to keep going to infinity and Bitcoin has a fixed supply. I mean, it just doesn't, it, it's like every other hard asset out there, but for some reason, everybody just is so skeptical on Bitcoin or at least the normies, not you or I, obviously. <laughs> But I want to get into a little bit about GBTC. You brought it up earlier, right? I mean, explain what's going on for those who don't know. And, you know, I don't know if you've been traveling here much lately, but GBTC is literally <laughs> advertising in every single airport I've been to. I've been to, and I don't actually, I don't know about Tampa, but I've been in Atlanta. I've been in Chicago. I've been in New York. And I've been to all these different places. I'm seeing GBTC everywhere. I think I even saw it in the El Salvador airport uh, advertising. So, you know, what's going on with GBTC now that this ETF is uh, now uh, good and released? Yeah. Hey, when you can charge 1.5% fees, you you got plenty of advertising money. That's for sure. So I think the, the main outflow from GBTC, some people are trying to escape the fees but those were people who were earlier to the game, already had access to their brokerage account to Bitcoin, already understood the Bitcoin value proposition and wanted that traditional side exposure. They were paying a premium in fees to get it. Now with all the, the rest of the ETFs out, we can see those fees are coming down. As fees went down, people are just going to do what they're incentivized to do. That's what's great about Bitcoin. It's a free market. Truly, uh, free market incentives drive this marketplace more than anything else, whereas in the TradFi marketplace, we know there's a lot of drivers, and most of the time, it's not the free market. It's some appointed agency or institution, and Bitcoin is going to let us get out of that. And I think the main selling pressure, though, from GBTC was not escaping the fees, but it was capturing the profit on that discount to the natural asset value. Things got so bearish there that you could buy discount. Why buy, why buy Bitcoin for market price when you can buy it for a discount to market price? Uh, that was really the value proposition of people who thought, hey, one day uh, GBTC is going to be able to convert. It's going to get that convertibility factor and you're going to be able to lock in those profits. And I, and I, and as someone who participated, I do believe that a lot of the, the move from 49 back down to 39 was locking in a trade. That was a short term trade opportunity. And when you sit down and open that trade, you're not accumulating Bitcoin for the long run. That's not what you're doing. You're 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 making a trade. If you want to close, you want to profit on the discount to the natural asset value. And when that window closed, you close the trade. And then maybe you take your profits and you start to accumulate some Bitcoin. 
But that was the strategy behind that trade. And it was to the tune of billions of dollars. A lot of people were Nick Carter made that trade very famous. A lot of people were in on that trade. Uh, and that uh, that was the free market price discovery process. It's called distribution. Right. So we had we had a huge move way above trend. And uh, if you follow me, you'll see a lot of um, charts, a lot like your channel. You got a lot of great charts. But, you know, Bitcoin's been in an uptrend since the, the crash from FTX. So that big bullish uptrend move that we've been in, even with the move from 49 down to 40, uh, we were consolidating at the top of the trend. So it's like it's not just in the bullish half of the trend. It has broken out from the trend. It is it is it's more bullish than the bullish trend. And it's now consolidating above that trend, turning trend resistance into trend support to, I think, go off the new all time highs very soon. The halving is approaching quickly. A lot of people follow me for my Bitcoin fair value algorithm. It's a treasury management algorithm for miners to remove human emotion from uh, management of your treasury from your mining operation. And I've never seen what's happening on my chart. I actually had to check my script. I had to go back in and be like, is something broken? I think some, something in the data is broken. We've had 17 straight days with almost a percent per day of growth. Bitcoin fair value now up to 52,000 meaning Bitcoin's trading at a pretty decent discount right now. And historically, discounts are buys and premiums are distribution periods. So everything is lining up. The technicals are lining up. The fundamentals are lining up, not only just on the demand side with the ETFs allowing the base layer of demand to grow, but also on the supply side. We have quickly approaching the halving. We are for sure going to get the halving shock, but I don't want to inform your listeners about the halving shock. I got a little bit of a twist on this that the market is uh, really just starting to swallow this pill, and it's the cost of production pill. Actually, I'm wearing it on my shirt today. The cost of production, proof of work equals cost of production equals natural asset value, right? So we just talked about the natural asset value of GBT shares. We know that that share represented a certain amount of Bitcoin. We know the market price of Bitcoin. So if we can buy that share for less than its natural asset value, well, then you buy it. Well, Bitcoin today is at a discount to its natural asset value. The natural asset value is the cost of production. And people, you know, a lot of people look at me, that's the labor theory of value. Well, you know what? I know one thing about that person. They have never run a business in their life because you run a business to make money. You run a business to make profit. I mean, if you're running a business and you're not making money, shut down your business and go get a job because at least you'll make money, right? So you, and it doesn't compute with people because up to 12% of companies that are publicly traded in the United States are what we call zombie companies. That means these companies only were able to scale and grow because they took out debt. Now they don't have enough, they don't have products and services that deliver a high enough value proposition in order to charge a price above the cost in order to profit to service their debt. So they're zombies, they're dead in the water. We can catch that in Bitcoin and 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 attack that problem with the engineered ingenuity of Bitcoin. I call Bitcoin um, the most pristine form of collateral in the world because it's the most pristine form of money in the world. And the reason is, is because it was engineered. It was designed, especially with the having and fixed supply and the difficulty adjustment. So with these miners coming up with the having, the reward gets cut in half. All the investors are super excited. Like, yes, supply shock. Here we go, baby. Rockets to the moon. But if you're a miner, you're like, shit, this sucks. Like, I got to run my numbers. I might not be around after this. Like, this is concerning. Why? Because 50% reward reduction, that means 50% or 100% higher cost. You're doubling my cost of production. So what happens is if people like you and me and your listeners believe in the value proposition of Bitcoin and self-sovereign money that can't be fucked with or taken from you, well, then that Value proposition comes with a cost because just like any other business, they can't offer you the, their good or service for less than the cost. And the same thing with Bitcoin miners. So I like to keep an eye on the cost of production of Bitcoin. And with this having doubling the cost of production of Bitcoin in tandem with the ETFs allowing the base layer of demand to grow like it never has before, I think we're going to put this diminishing returns theory to rest. And this is going to be one of the biggest, largest cycles we've ever seen. All right. Well, I have to, I mean, that was bullish as hell. So that was fucking awesome. But I'm going to have to play devil's advocate with you here a little bit about the having, because this is some thought that somebody brought up to me. And 
it's got me thinking a little bit here, right? So the having, right? I mean, we have what, like 92% of total uh, total coins in circulation at this point. So 8% is left to be mined, right? And so would that 8% then control the entire market value or would it be more so on, you know, uh, I guess consumer behavior is what we can call it, right? Basically the hodlers here where it's like, you know, I think it's 60% of wallets last time I checked with over one uh, full Bitcoin, that coin hasn't moved in over a couple of years now. So I think that behavior affects it a little bit more than the, than the having per se. What do you have to say to that? Do you think it's, a, I guess, a combination of both? Or do you think it's maybe a little bit more, more of one than the other? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point. And it's absolutely both. That's what's so great about price discovery. It's not just one thing that you can look at. I like to look at the supply side of the equation. What you just addressed is the demand side of the equation. And the only way to turn that demand into supply is through price because it's only the higher price that is going to convince somebody to let go of their Bitcoin. And I think that's what's so important about Bitcoiners. And the future of Bitcoin. Remember, I said Bitcoin is the most pristine form of collateral in the world. Well, there exists no products and services today that treat Bitcoin as the most pristine form of collateral in the world. If you take your the deed to your home and you go to the bank, they'll let you borrow against it. Chances are your home is probably overpriced, and they'll actually let you borrow more money against your home than possibly what you could sell it, fire sell it for on the market to rate because it's an illiquid investment. Um, and then if you bring Bitcoin and go to borrow against it, they'll laugh you at the building. Yet Bitcoin is 24-7 and 100% liquid. It's the most liquid market in the world, and it's the only 24-7 liquidity pool in the world. Um, it's the most pristine form of collateral. They don't have to trust anybody, and they won't let you borrow against it. So I think a lot of the selling pressure we see today is actually a result of the lack of products and services built around Bitcoin as the most pristine form of collateral. You know, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, uh, sure, he got a big group of his rich friends together and raised some money, but the other portion of that money that he got for himself, some of it was cash, but do you know what, do you know what he did? He borrowed against his Tesla shares. So he had these Tesla shares. There's all this value sitting there. He doesn't want to sell Tesla. Arguably, he can't, he, he can't sell Tesla. It might send the wrong message. Um, so how does he tap into that liquidity? All of that equity values trapped there. Well, no, it's not because there's market makers in the traditional system that recognize the value of Tesla and are willing to accept it as collateral and give you a loan. So he borrowed against his Tesla shares and then put that money into X. X is creating cash flow. He slowly sells that off and pulls back collateral. Uh, and what do you know at the end of it? He ends up with Twitter, which he calls X, and he ends up with still his Tesla shares. So the, the the sophistication of financial products and services built around Bitcoin is basically zero. There has been nobody, there has been no company that's come out and designed products and services with the with the idea of treating Bitcoin for what it is, which is the most pristine form of collateral in the world. When we see these products and services come to market, which we will see this cycle, I think no price is going to convince anybody to sell their Bitcoin. It might convince them to borrow against it. I mean, first of all, if you sell your Bitcoin, you're talking about capital gains. So right off the bat, best case scenario, 20%. Maybe you have a good tax guy. Maybe you get 17%. Who knows? But you're, you're talking 17 to 20% no matter what. Well, if somebody's borrowing with Bitcoin and it's pristine collateral and you're borrowing at prime rate, let's say the prime rate is eight and a half, then you can borrow for two, two and a half years before you get to that 20% mark. So why would you why would you sell and force yourself to give up 20% equity in taxes when you can borrow against it, not have any tax obligation whatsoever, and then use that to for whatever cash flow venture you're looking to put it into and then get it back at the end when you pay back the loan. That's the type of product that I think is going to really change the demand side of the equation. Because yes, there is a limited amount of supply of those tokens from the miners. But really, the miners are the ones that have to sell because there's there's costs that they're incurring. So when you buy and you stack Bitcoin, you don't really sure you have a cost basis, but you're not really incurring cost because you've already worked for that value. Doesn't you get an exchange fee? But that you know that's that's minimal cost. So that's 
the discrepancy between the supply and demand, and both do play a role. If you know the, it, the laws of economics uh, don't go on pause just because of what you know, if the demand increases and people want to sell their Bitcoin, then price is going to come down. It's that simple. But then people like myself and yourself and other people who know what Bitcoin is and where this is going and know that most likely they'll never sell it be because we anticipate the correct level of sophistication with financial products and services that will unlock that trapped equity, right? It's trapped in the cryptoverse right now. It's trapped in the, in the internet economy. How do I turn my Bitcoin into real estate without having to pay taxes on it? How do I do that? It, all those financial products and services are going to come this cycle and it's going to change the way uh i mean maxis are already like i want bitcoin and i'm not selling it and it don't matter right so imagine how much more that mindset is going to expand to the people who are like well if it goes up high enough I, I will take some profit yeah but if it goes up high enough and you can borrow against it and buy an investment property and then use the cash flow from that investment property to close the liability and at the end you still have your bitcoin and now you have an investment property it's a no-brainer that you wouldn't sell the Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as a financial tool that can be leveraged to empower we the people is about to bring the, the supply-demand dynamic to a whole nother level. I agree with you. And I think those services need to come quicker. Uh, but the, the problem with all that, though, is that you know, at that point in time, like you have to disclose all of your assets, right? So when you're like, I mean, I just recently bought an investment property using the equity from this home that I'm sitting in here to buy another one. So, I mean, it's all kind of like inflated prices, right? I mean, what happened in 2020, let me buy the house at an extremely low interest rate. I have renters that pay down my own personal mortgage. And then, you know, and then I get to borrow against it to buy another house where renter. So it's like that snowball effect. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we don't have those kind of services with Bitcoin one uh, and two, like banks don't recognize Bitcoin as like a collateral asset kind of has you, how you're describing here. So I think, I think that's correct. I think like a lot of people are going to start looking at that as more of like a collateral asset, but I think we're going to have a give and take here because I think some people are going to really want that, those products and services and be like, Hey, you know, I have 10 coins. I have five coins. I have two coins or I have, you know, 25 million sats, like whatever it is, um, you know, that they're, that they're trying to borrow against. They're perfectly fine with disclosing that where others are going to be like, all right, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to touch this at all. So what worries me is that, you know, kind of we're in this weird state with housing right now where a lot of investors are scooping up single family homes. I actually saw an article that said, uh, like, I think the top uh, institutional invest investors are consolidated. They're buying into like six cities and Tampa being number one. So, um, you know, obviously that kind of hits close to home for, wh for where I'm at. But it makes me think that, you know, one that once these interest rates start to come down, housing is going to go up. And, you know, these uh, institutional investors who came in and scooped up houses in Tampa are just going to inflate the prices even more than they already have. And then two, like, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are going to be like, like not willing to buy a house because, you know, they'd rather stack Bitcoin, which, you know, lower barrier to entry, those kind of things. So without those products and services, I'm worried about the state of housing for, you know, the average pleb out there because, you know, exactly what I lined out, like too many, like a Bitcoin world, I, I kind of had this argument with some people. So I, maybe we'll get down this rabbit hole about housing. But, you know, saying like real estate is a shit coin, I think we kind of need to shift that narrative because, you know, if we live in a Bitcoin world where BlackRock owns all the apartment buildings, all of the single family homes, or if it's not BlackRock, it's another institutional investor. And then they also own all the commercial buildings where, you know, you have all your local places and, you know, people, the people don't really own real estate. I get it, you know, with the taxes and everything, you don't really officially own it, you know, the semantics and plan, whatever. But at the end of the day, if that's the case, right, you're going to have to be paying your rent, uh, your rent to BlackRock as Bitcoin. So eventually they're going to keep stacking with this ETF and then they're going to just kind of suck the whole supply dry. So in my eyes, I think we need what you're describing here very quickly because of, you know, what I, what, what I laid out with my worries. So I guess I'll let you rebuttal. Do, do you agree with me or do you think I'm kind of crazy and maybe too, too doom and gloom when it comes to housing? <laughs> No, well, first of all, you're spot on, and I can put you to rest because 
for the last two and a half years, we've been stealth building people's reserve. And people's reserve is a market maker for we the people. In other words, we have the pool of liquidity and we're willing to recognize Bitcoin as pristine collateral. And we're going to offer these products and services because as a lender, see, what they've done is they've messed everything up. The, the debt is supposed to be an asset to the lender and a liability to the borrower, right? And I'm not talking about the balance sheet. I'm just talking about the mathematics of it. Well, even at the current interest rates, I can't lend you money and have a real positive rate of return. I mean, sure, if you believe the government CPI, which is better known as CPLI, well, then sure, you have a, you, you can feel good about it because you're making a positive rate of return. But when you go to buy something at the store, you're not going to be able to buy more stuff. You're going to be able to buy less stuff, right? So I care about the reality of the fact that when I go to lend out my money, I need a real positive rate of return. And if I can't get that positive rate of return, then I want negative risk. And that's what Bitcoin introduces into the equation. It eliminates the risk because it's a commodity credit market rather than a, a credit market, a traditional credit market based on promises, right? I mean, if you promise you'll pay back that credit and then you don't pay back that credit and then they annoy you for a couple months. And then a collector comes and sends you a letter and says, if you pay 60 cents on the dollar, we'll leave you alone. And you say, okay, okay fine. Right. And, and that guy just lost 40% off the top. That lender lost. See, banks don't care because they can create out of thin air. But regular people who have a pool of money that they're trying to lend, we care quite a bit because we can't create it out of thin air. So that drives me to my second point, the create out of thin air quote there about what you made about real estate being a shit coin, because I disagree with that take as well. And Here's why. Because a shitcoin is something that can be created with zero cost, right? A shitcoin is like uh, some kind of cryptocurrency that a developer can just type in, press copy and paste and create the coin and then market it to you and sell it to you and drive the community and use all the demand side tricks to, to create price and liquidity. But there's what happens on the supply side is that there are there's no cost, right? With real estate, uh, as a real estate investor, I'm sure you're aware of the term of replacement cost. If you're looking at properties and you're scanning an area and you see a property that's below its replacement cost, which is another way of saying just cost of production. In other words, if you had the builder and you had all the connections and you had all the ways to source all those materials and build that home, well, you can buy that home right there for less than it would cost you to build it. Okay, perfect. That's a discount to the natural asset value. So if something has a natural asset value, it's because it has a cost. And if something has a cost, it's not a shit coin, right? Now, when you talk about the dollar and all these other things that don't have a cost because they can be created at will and ad infinitum, then that's a shit coin. So yeah, I, I do agree with you there. There needs to, we need to draw a line here. And I think we want to, we actually want to combine mo both marketplaces because what we have is we have trapped liquidity on the TradFi side in your real estate equity. Sure, you can bring it to the bank and borrow against it and pay them interest. But why hasn't the bank made the market the opposite way? Why, haven't, why can't I be empowered by my real world equity? Why do I always have to create more liabilities off of it and hope that the asset, the cash flow from the rental covers that? Why can't I just create equity right off the top and cash flow? And Bitcoin is going to blow people's minds and people's reserve. We're going to be the first market mover. We're going to be the people who have already, we've stealth built this. It's been really hard to keep my mouth shut. We go into beta in August uh, and then we go live. So it's going to take the market by storm. Uh, people are going to be surprised by it. But most importantly, holders of Bitcoin are going to be empowered because they are now going to have the opportunity to unlock some of that wealth that they've been disciplined enough to save in the digital internet economy and see the benefits of it in the real world by being able to accumulate real world assets without having to give up ownership. And I think if you were going to do that, the best way to do that is real estate. I don't think you should borrow against your Bitcoin and buy stocks. Are you insane? Look at all the ratios that are at that. None of this stuff makes sense. It's, it's a scam. It's, it, it's, there's no cost to it, right? I mean, you, Michael Saylor is like the champion of this. He built this company at cash flows. Well, he leverages the cash flow of his company and issues more debt and buys Bitcoin. I mean, it is genius. He's going down in the history books. Shout out to Sonny Poe on Twitter. Sonny Poe. This guy is like the pleb version of Michael Saylor. He, he took out all these credit cards and he maximized all the credit cards and just bought Bitcoin with it. All of it. 
right? And people are like, dude, you're an idiot. Did it? And he's like, no, man, I got 0% interest until 2026. You know, he's taking advantage of all the offers and taking all of that money, all of that basically free money, right? Because it's going to pay for itself. Just like Saylor, he raised debt with interest too. And he's not the Fed, so he couldn't raise that zero or 0.25. He's got a, a pretty hefty number on there too. But what is he doing? He knows what Bitcoin is. He knows where the value is going to go. And he's leveraging that debt as a financial tool to accumulate Bitcoin. And that's great because MicroStrategy can do that. But the everyday person, unless you're, unless you're Sonny Poe, is not going to do that. But if you could do it with your existing Bitcoin, now we're interested. Now this is a value proposition that solves a problem, right? Because you have these, all these zombie companies where all their value, they don't solve any problems. I don't need your shit. You got to convince me that I want it. Okay, stay far away from there. If someone needs what you have, it's because you're solving a problem that is on a pretty much a global scale. It's going to be a, a problem. Any First world, second world, third world, it's going to be a problem. And even if it's just a problem in the first world, okay, you're, gonna, you're not going to be as big as the other guys, but you're still solving a problem. So if we go back into like what solves a problem, yeah, a house gives me a, a roof over my head. It protects me from the elephant elephants. Yeah, I guess if there's Roman elephants, it protects you from them too. But if, if, if you're, it's, a, it's a place to raise your family, right? So um, it's solving a problem. So I, I don't like real estate as a shit coin. As a matter of fact, I think Bitcoin and real estate have a really bright future together. Uh, and if that doesn't make sense now, I hope it will after people's reserve launches. There we go. And I, and I love that, dude. That, that product sounds like amazing. So yeah, I mean, beta in August, and then I'll be looking forward to that because I mean, yeah. I think that's going to be right around the time too, they're starting to cut interest rates. So that's where I, oh, where yeah. I get into oh, my goodness. next is like oh. your, your thought on that, because uh, I'll, I'll let you speak first. And I'll I'm go sorry. I forgot to, there was so much like at, while you were talking, there was like 10 points in my head, like, oh, I got to say, and I only really covered two because it, everything you're saying is so, is so important, but you're right. Um, people right now, there's $6 trillion on the sidelines. What the hell are you waiting for? They're telling you that they're going to lower interest rates. Look, when interest rates go lower, exactly what you said is going to happen. Prices are going to skyrocket. Prices are, people are going to borrow. Imagine all the people who didn't borrow at three and 4% because they just wanted to wait. And now for the last couple of years, they've had zero opportunity and it is 100% unaffordable. Well, when those rates go back down, they are not going to hesitate, not even for one second, to tap into that uh, opportunity and to purchase that home. So the, the demand on housing is going to skyrocket against a limited supply that can only be expanded at a certain speed because of the cost and because of the natural asset value of all the materials that go into it. And prices are going to explode. So I mean, I've had a couple of clients that have actually purchased homes over the last couple of years against their family's advice against, and you know what? They're more happy. They're, they're so happy. And they know, you know, in a couple of years, I can refinance. I got to bite the bullet for a little bit here, and then I can refi, and I'm going to be sitting just as pretty as everybody else, except with, I have a better cost basis. I have, I have a better price. So that's definitely going to take place with those interest rates. And I hope it works out that way, because if they lose control of the yield curve, whole different picture, uh, and, and it could be catastrophic for the entire system itself. Not, I'm not even talking about real estate. I'm talking about, you know, if if the 10-year note went up to like seven and a half to nine percent, you think the banks had trouble back in March. I mean, nobody will be alive. And then couple on top of that commercial real estate, the banks don't have your money. The banks don't have your money. But don't worry, I don't want to induce any fear or panic in anybody. The government will print that money for you. That money will be in your bank account. You don't have to worry about it. The problem is you don't know what you're going to be able to buy because they're going to have to print so much money so that everybody doesn't lose everything that you're not going to lose in terms of the dollar number on your screen. What you're going to lose is the quality of your life and the standard of your living. That's how you're going to, that's how we're going to pay for this. The quality of life and standard of living is going to decrease substantially as it has over the last three years. Everybody can, can see if you wanted to maintain the same lifestyle. I have a family of five. My costs have more than doubled. And, and, and we don't, I'm a, ma I'm a Bitcoin maxi. All extra cash flow goes into Bitcoin. We don't buy the little stupid shit because everything extra goes into Bitcoin. Me and my wife are on the same page, thank God. Everything extra goes into Bitcoin. We haven't changed our lifestyle. We live frugally. We're planning for the future. Things are still 100% more expensive than they were pre-COVID. And it's only been four years. So this is, this is a major problem. We're already paying for it. 
I'm sure your listeners know themselves or from family members that it's a struggle to keep up. And that's because inflation is not 3.4%. Inflation right now is 11%. And that's not based on CJ. Look, my opinion is worthless. It doesn't really matter what I think. But the government paid a, a pretty smart think tank back in the early 80s, because in the 70s, the 71 off the gold standard, we had an inflationary crisis. In the early 80s, they paid, they paid some smart people who actually were Austrians and real economists to come together and figure out how do we track how much it costs to, to live? How do we set up this consumer price index to be fair and to be right? And there was a government financed and produced equation for CPI. And it's fantastic and it's pretty darn accurate. What happened after that is they started making all these manipulations. They said, oh, no, we got to change it. Oh, we got to change it again. Now we have to perform hedonics or substitution, right? So filet goes up too much. No worries. Just use hamburger meat. There's all these tricks that they use now. So the data they're collecting is accurate. That raw data that they're collecting is accurate and true. The equation they're plugging that raw data into and the substitutions they're making in the basket, it's all being done to produce a lower number. Because the lower the inflation number is, the the smaller the number that I subtract from the real rate of uh from the rate of return, which gives me my real rate of return, right? So if I can get five percent in three month T bills, and the if rate of inflation is three percent, then if I believe them, my real rate of return is two percent. My purchasing power should increase two percent over the course of the year, five percent from the from the APY, but but minus 3% from the prices going up. So I get net net plus 2% increased purchasing power. But that's not true. So what I do is I go back to the original equation that was produced after the crisis in the 70s, after the inflation crisis of the 70s. I go back to that equation, which is pre-hedonics, which is more true and accurate. And inflation today is over 11%. It's actually 11.19%. So if inflation is 11%, and you're getting 5% uh, in T-bills, you're getting 6% negative real returns. You'll buy 6% smaller home next year, 6% shittier car, 6% less groceries, 6% less fun, 6% less of everything because the real rate of return on your money is negative. And that's the government is incentivized to tell you a smaller inflation number because that makes the real rate of return go up. Now, something I've shared that has, I don't know why people haven't really latched onto this idea yet, but to me, this is the most important, besides Bitcoin, this is the biggest news development in all of modern finance. The Federal Reserve, I should say, the US Treasury has lost the ability to raise interest rates and increase the real rate of return. Let me say that one more time. The US Treasury has lost the ability to raise interest rates and increase the real rate of return. If you'll just humor me for a second, let me roll through this. Typically, if you're issuing debt and there's no interest, there's no demand on that debt, what you do is you raise the interest rate. And it gets to a point where people say, oh yeah, hey, you know what? At 0.25%, I'm not really interested in letting the government borrow. I'd rather go invest. I'd rather be in the S&P that gets 6%. I'd rather, I'd rather do anything else because of this zero point. So when the risk-free rate goes up to 5%, the, you see some of those funds start to flow out into the 5% because it's considered risk-free because the real rate of return is positive. But the higher the rate goes, the more demand there is. Okay. But for the first time in history, because of $34 trillion of debt, And because of $211 trillion of unfunded liabilities, remember in the 70s, we were in an inflationary recession, but the debts weren't that high. So they could move the interest rates up to 20%. And the level of demand destruction that was created in the economy created enough uh, negative price pressure. And then the, the increased interest on small debt, there was nothing, it didn't take a lot of inflation to service those debts. So the, the negative price pressure from demand destruction was greater than the positive price pressure being created through issuing more treasuries to service debts. The difference today is the 34 trillion plus the 211 trillion 
plus the other hundred billion we're sending there. I mean, every single every single month, it's like they're spending more money. I mean, the if you look at the um, U.S. debt clock, and we're at thirty four trillion, but you just go back to the beginning of twenty twenty three. You know, you look at the clock; it says we're running a one point seven trillion dollar deficit, but that's not true because at the beginning of thirty thirty, it was it was thirty one trillion. So in one year, we added three trillion dollars to our debt. So we're running a three trillion dollar deficit, not one point seven. So what happens is when the interest rate goes up, and actually Max Kaiser quoted me on this, and we both got quoted in a Forbes article, which was pretty cool. But what happens is the higher the interest rate goes, the higher inflation goes because of the debt, right? Because now the government is rolling over thirty four trillion plus issuing new spending bills at five percent, not at zero point two five or zero point five. At 5%, hundreds of percent increase on interest. What has that done? Well, the US has gone from spending just over 200 billion on interest expense to now over $1 trillion on interest expense. It is one of the top line items in the US budget is now interest. So as interest rates go higher, what happens is the government actually has to print more currency units in order to service that debt. Well, they, they've never had to do that before. I mean, they've had, a, they've had to do it, but they haven't had to do it to this extent. And because of this massive amount of debt, what's happening is as interest rates go higher, the dollar is getting diluted at a faster pace. So you would think, oh, it's okay if the government um, wants people to buy their debt, they can just raise interest rates from 5 to 6%. But wait a second, because real smart money is not looking at that nominal rate that's being offered on the bill or the note or the bond, it's looking at the real rate of return, which accounts for inflation. So if you raise the interest rate to 6%, but that pushes the real inflation rate from 11 to 12%, what just happened? Yes, the nominal rate went up, but you're now subtracting a larger inflation rate from the nominal rate. Therefore, the real rate went down. So this is like, I mean, that might not be clicking for some people out there, but you don't have to, you have to understand how important this is. They cannot attract more demand on their debt by raising the interest rate. So people think they're done hiking because they're in the sweet spot. No, they're done hiking because they realized, oh shit, the higher the interest rate goes, the faster the dollar loses value. The faster the dollar loses value, the longer inflation is going to be around. We better just stop right here and hope somehow, some way, enough demand destruction can outpace um, with negative price pressure the the positive price pressure that's being created through all of the dilution of the dollars in order to service these debts this is this should be the talk of the town right now all right well yeah i mean with, with granted with everything that you've said right i mean the fed like potentially lowering interest rates q3 q4 that's where that's where i kind of think because of exactly like you lined out right i mean the mantra was higher for longer originally powell said not until 25 I think maybe at this point, I mean, they've already talked about it, right? They talked about when, and he kind of backtracked in last meeting and said, instead of six, like the market's pricing in, it's going to be closer to three rate cuts. So I, I have a feeling it's going to be later in the year, like Q3, Q4. But, you know, if you kind of look back historically, every time the Fed cuts interest rates, it leads to a recession. So everybody thinks that, you know, cutting interest rates is going to be some positive thing and all this liquidity is going to be dumped in and, you know, everything's going to go all peaches and daisies. I really don't think it's the case. So, but, you know, I also kind of see the, I guess, line in the sand where it's like, all right, employment is still relatively okay, right? I mean, you could, there's a lot of anecdotal stories that I've heard of people, friends getting laid off. I definitely don't think the job market is as good as it was pre-COVID. Um, or even, you know, in that COVID boom when everybody was just hiring for all these crazy remote jobs. But I don't think that we're quite in a destructive recession just yet. And like, I think that there's a lot of cracks beginning to surface. And I think that we're on the edge of that, basically, is what where I think we're at. So I'll, I'll ask you straight up, do you think we're in a recession now? Do you think there's going to be one? Uh, how do you think uh, I guess I put on your uh, your uh, like uh, thinking cap here and maybe get get a, give us a little foresight of where you think we're going. Yeah. So first of all, great questions. And the first thing I want to talk about is uh, the the jobs because um, I, I'll use an example like Meta. I think Meta laid off like twenty percent of its workers, right? So 
when you look at the government's job numbers, now I'm not as well versed on the jobs numbers as I am on the inflation numbers. I've spent more time and energy researching CPI and where that all came from than I did the jobs numbers, but I don't trust the jobs numbers either. And what happens is when a person at Meta loses their job and then they go and they start serving tables and then driving Uber and then working the bar on the weekend, well, in the government numbers, you lost one job, but three were created. So it's a net positive too. So I think that you have to be careful uh, the way we interpret jobs numbers and how that translates to the health of the economy. Because uh, go ask the guy who lost his job at Meta, who was making 150K, if he now likes working three jobs, making maybe like 60K total. Because he's part-time on all three, just trying to scrape by. Is that a stronger economy? Is that a, a strong economy is not the most Americans in history having two and three jobs. A strong economy is the most Americans in history having one job and the man works the job or the woman works the job and the man stays at home or the woman stays at home and you have one person going and working and that creates enough value. That's a strong jobs market because now they have a high quality standard of living off of just one job. But when you need two and three jobs or each person needs to be working two or three jobs, that's a weak market. So I think that the economy is already in a recession and what's tainting the GDP numbers is inflation because they're saying inflation is 3%. So they use what's called the GDP deflator. The GDP deflator is, is for basic simple terms, it's, it's, it's like the CPI. It doesn't count imports, so it's a little bit different, but you subtract the deflator from GDP to see what the real growth is so that you can get rid of all the nominal, all that nominal price growth is negated so you can see the core growth of of the actual true economy and when you do that with a deflator of three percent then the economy is like doing pretty good yeah i mean shit i mean we're doing like the best we have since since the 80s so things are growing for, i mean in q3 2023 um annualized gdp was 6.2 percent that's the highest it's been since 1984 so when you're not deflating and when you're not accounting for inflation properly and you're using a smaller deflator than you should, then that's when you get confusion in the marketplace. Hey, how can, how can the economy be growing and more people are working two or three jobs? How, how could, that's what you call an inflationary recession. An inflationary recession is where the numbers still go up, but the quality of life and the standard of living go down. And what's interesting about this concept is if you look at Venezuela or Argentina and you, you study these areas, Venezuela, they destroyed all economic demand. There was no demand in, in the economy except for basic essentials. So like I need somewhere to like sleep and I need food to eat and water to drink. They killed the economy and there was only basic essential demand. Prices still went up. Why? Because the source of the positive price pressure was not from the demand in the economy. It was from the devaluation of the currency. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing GDP growth in the United States, not based on the strength of the economy, but rather based on the extreme devaluation of the currency with the powers that be not admitting to that level of devaluation. And therefore that level, that excess devaluation that they're not admitting to is actually being flipped on its side and being sold back to you as growth. I mean, it's, it's, we are not in a good position today. I would say the economy is still trying to recover from COVID, but has not yet since turned positive. When I look at my GDP chart, we are still below the zero line. We are, we are actually, we were one quarter away from, a lot of people know that a recession is, is two quarters in a row of negative growth, right? Well, a depression is one year of more than 10% uh, decline or 12 consecutive quarters of negative growth. Well, we went 11 consecutive quarters of negative growth. And the last quarter of 2023, I was keeping my eye on that like a hawk because if we came in with the real numbers, right? Not with the government numbers, but if we came in at negative, we would have met both definitions of depression. Sure, we got the depression in 2020. It was artificial because it was from the shutdown. I give them that. So I, you can't, in my opinion, it's an artificial depression. It doesn't count. But now that we're trying to recover, now that you remove that artificial variable and we're open, we're trying to recover, 
when you look at growth and you account for real inflation, we've been less and less negative. So yeah, we've been recovering, but we have not, we have not been growing at all. And the last quarter of 2023, we were positive 0.1%. By a 10th of 1%, we escaped meeting the definition of a depression of 12 consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So we barely made it out of, of uh, our recovery, barely made it out of meeting the definition, an economic definition of depression. And right now, the, the economy, when it needs it, when it needs the most support, the, the powers that be have performed the, the most aggressive interest rate hike in the history of finance in percentage terms. So the, the percentage of, of liability growth, uh, the percentage of deterioration on balance sheets who, who hold treasury bills as collateral, such as the banks, the, all of this stuff has been absolutely decimated, decimated by this hiking uh, schedule and the economy itself, which was trying to recover and trying to trying to get back above and get positive again, now has to has to run uphill and carry a sack of rocks with the with these higher rates. So, to me, the economy is already lost. The economy is already dead. And what is producing the immaculate, fantastic vote for Joe Biden again because everything is fantastic numbers. Um, is just really the lying that's being done about the inflation number. If they can just tweak that inflation number, they can lie to you about GDP. They can lie to you about real returns. They can lie to you about incentives. So that's why we hear so much talk about inflation. That's why Jerome Powell will get on to 60 Minutes and talk about inflation because if they can control the narrative around inflation and they can control what that number is and what you believe that number is, well, then they can control your incentives. If you break away from that data and you go independent, or even if you don't go independent and you go back to just their original equation, right? It's the government equation. I wasn't even born back then. Doesn't fit my opinion. It's their equation. They paid for it. Let's use that equation without the manipulation. You're at 11%. So it's just the narrative. The, the reason that so, so many people are starting to realize the reality doesn't match the narrative is because now it's broken. The whole at at five percent plus, it's broken. And if the Fed loses control of the yield curve, and you start to see the long end sell off, because the the ten year and three month yield curve, which is in my opinion the most important yield curve to watch, it is currently in the longest and steepest yield curve inversion in its recorded history. So what does that mean? That means that the rest of the marketplace, they're going even further than the Fed. The Fed is coming out and saying, hey, inflation is 3.4% and it's going away. You know, it was all the way up at eight plus. Now we brought it all the way down to three. We got control of this. Don't you worry about it. It's going to keep coming down and everything's going to work out for that soft landing. Well, what's really interesting is that the marketplace has actually, instead of taking the opposite side of the coin, they've built on top of that. So the opposite side of the coin is, is our position. Like inflation is is out of control because of the amount of spending that's going on. And inflation isn't going away because of the amount of spending that's going on. The, the, the money that parks themselves in these treasury bills is saying, well, the Fed's wrong and inflation is going to turn into deflation. That's how you get an inverted yield curve because the natural laws of economics are if you lend money in the short term, it's a shorter interest rate because there's less term premium risk. And then if you lend money in the long term, it's a higher interest rate because of that term premium. So when you can borrow money uh, for cheaper in the long term than you can in the short term, the, the market's signaling something to you. And what it's signaling through this yield curve inversion is, well, the Fed is completely off basis. But instead of, instead of looking at the real data and not believing their hedonics and manipulations and narratives, they're, they're taking that narrative and raising it to the 10th power. And they're saying, well, not only is inflation not a problem at all whatsoever, but inflation is going to turn into deflation. So the market is way, 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 way off sides on this one because we can look at the government's, the Congressional Budget Office with their projected spending uh, versus projected GDP. And it's actually on uh, Lawrence Lepard's pinned tweet right now. Uh, you know, red line creates revenues to pay for the debt on the blue line. So it ain't going to work this way because it's not growing proportionally and it can't work. So if the market realizes this 
sure, the Federal Reserve can come out and say, hey, the federal funds effective rate is 0% or 0.25%, whatever they want to make it be. It was a, it's a target range, right? So it'd be 0 to 0.25%. That would bring down the front end of the curve because of the arbitrage opportunities. You would get all those market makers who have access to the Fed's discount window. Well, they would start buying the three-month treasury bills off the market right away because they could take those and then bring them to the discount window and profit the difference. So that's how the federal funds effective rate acts as an anchor to the front end of the curve, which is that three-month bill. But on the back end of the curve, they don't really have any way to influence that except with like issuing or not issuing. So if the free market, if the supply side of that market changes its mind and says, well, shit, real inflation is 4% or 6%, well, they're not going to be losing money in real terms. They're going to sell that off and it's going to go up. So yeah, the Fed could name the, the front end of the, the federal funds effective rate 0 to 0 0.25. The three months can be dragged down the through arbitrage opportunities for market makers, but the long end of the curve can still explode. The, long, the free market end of the curve can still sell off and tell the Fed, you don't know what you're talking about. The problem is, is they're telling the Fed now, you don't know what you're talking about because they think deflation is coming. But we're in an inflationary recession. This recession, uh, they think the recession is going to turn into a depression, which is going to be a traditional depression where prices come down. That would be a good thing. We actually need that, right? That would that would actually reset the system a little bit, and, and it would be a good thing. But instead, we're not going to get that. And if we were going to get that, we would have got it in March. You think they would have ever start the bank term funding program if they wanted to create deflation? That's the perfect time to create deflation. Don't do the bank term funding plan. Let those guys collapse. Let that credit evaporate. Let the uh, circulating units of currency dwindle down significantly through all the credit destruction. If they wanted deflation, they could have had it in March. Instead, they created the bank term funding program and created more inflation. The only, the only thing they can do is create inflation. So I'm watching uh, for what's going to happen in the immediate future, that 10-year, three-month yield curve, because I think that's going to be uh, – the, the real signal to when the Fed loses control of the curve. And when the Fed loses control of the curve, they're going to start yield curve control. So just look at Japan to see how much money you have to print to perform yield curve control. So in my mind, it doesn't matter if rates go up or go down because if rate, actually if rates go down, you'll have, you'll have less inflation from the, from the monetary side, right? You'll have less inflation from the, from the, um, the monetary policy side. Because you have all this debt, but we it's better for the United States. It causes less inflation to issue $3 trillion at 0.25% than it does to issue $3 trillion at 5 and 5.5%. 5 .5%. That's just basic math, right? But what happens when you lower rates is now the demand side of the equation comes in. Now you talk about the everyday people. Now banks are going to start extending credit because people are going to be swallowing that credit up. But the government spends more money than all of us combined, right? Consumer credit, I think, is at one trillion. The government's at thirty-four trillion plus another two hundred eleven trillion of unfunded liabilities. You're talking about almost two hundred and fifty trillion dollars versus just like one trillion dollars. So yeah, the amount of inflation that can be created through people borrowing money from the banks and then spending it into cir circulation is nothing compared to the amount of inflation that's created by the government when they borrow and spend into circulation. So if rates go down, I think inflation would actually cool down. Sure, you're going to get the supply demand of people rushing out to buy and borrow, but it's going to be way less positive price pressure than the amount of positive price pressure being created by currency dilution right now due to the, all the extra issuances required to service those debts. And then if interest rates go up, now the government is going to be creating massive amounts of more inflation because it's going to cost a lot more to issue three trillion at seven percent or three trillion at nine percent than it is uh, at a lower rate. And then people, yeah, people will, you know, more de demand destruction they call it. But now you're back to Venezuela, Argentina. You can kill the economy and prices will still go up because it's always the monetary side uh, that is going to be creating the stronger force on inflation than the consumer side. Yet we get blamed for it and we're supposed to, you know, shake their hand and, and say thank you. Amen, CJ. You got me all jacked up with all this, but we're running up on time here. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your time with me. I feel like we could talk about this stuff for hours, but 
Uh, I guess that leaves room for another conversation here in the near future. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you got going on? That, uh, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. And uh, I can't wait to come back because we didn't even get to talk about Bitcoin. I got this big Bitcoin behind me. And uh, I would love to dive more into Bitcoin fair value, Bitcoin price discovery, exactly what's going to happen, in, in my opinion, in the halving and how long it's going to take after the halving to get to that new all-time high. So we'll have to get that penciled in because uh, I look forward to sharing my opinion with your listeners. Right now, you can find me right at CJ Constantinos on Twitter uh, and on YouTube. And if you're a Bitcoin stacker and hodler uh, and you've been able to properly incentivize yourself to save in Bitcoin, then keep a close eye because People's Reserve goes beta in August. Uh, and then after that, you will be empowered by the proper financial products and services that recognize Bitcoin for what it is, the most pristine form of collateral in the world. There we go. And I will put all that in the show notes so everybody give him a follow. And CJ, thanks so much, man. Thank you.